I want to ask you a question or give you a, a hypothetical situation this morning. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to help me today. Okay? I haven't had a lot of time to prepare and my thoughts haven't all come together. But I want you to help me determine the way we go forward as a church. And I've been wrestling a lot with where we're at and where we're going and how we're going to get there and this whole concept that we've had this year of thriving in God. That we're supposed to be individually thriving. We're supposed to be thriving as a church. So I want to give you this scenario. A young man hears the gospel message. He hears about Jesus for the first time, that Christ died for his sins, and, and, and he gives his life to the Lord. He's dabbled in Eastern religions in his past, and they're occult. He's mucked around with widgie boards and all sorts of seances and all sorts of things. His background's really dysfunctional. His mum and dad didn't really raise him with good boundaries and standards, uh, he was abused as a child physically. His dad used to beat him up. Uh, his parents were absent most of the time, so he really, I guess, in a sense, raised himself. He's got a history of crime. He's got drug and alcohol addictions. He's had eating disorders. He's been very sexually promiscuous, sleeping around. He, he's got this sort of show signs of rejection, like you can't love him. Um, he's angry. You can see he's angry, but he's really shy and withdrawn. I want to ask you a question. Did God deal with all of that when he got saved? I want you to show your hands. Who thinks God dealt with that, cleaned him up, made him brand new when he got saved? Who thinks God did some of that? couple. Who thinks God did none of that? A couple. See the difference we have in our theology already. They're on different pages. And I think that if we could answer the question to that, we would have a much better way of knowing how to minister to people, what, what is the right approach. So today I want to, to help you unpack that. Now, if I gave that young man to you, entrusted him to you, to take on a journey of discipleship, and you were the only one that got to input into his life, do you think you could get him whole? Do you think you've got the skill set to walk him through that background, his past hurts, all of those addictions, and get him to a place where he's, you know, not perfect, but as whole as he can be in God? If I entrusted him to you, could you lead him? Could you teach him and train him to be whole? With God's help, yeah. Okay. Because I believe that every one of us should be able to take anybody that God brings across our path and disciple them to wholeness because that's what Jesus did, wasn't it? He took these rabble of fishermen and tax collectors and he nurtured them and inputted into them over a three-year intensive training period and got them to a point where they could go and do exactly what Jesus did with them again and again and again. And he trained them in such a way that they could train others. And so you, you can get what I'm trying to teach you, that if ministry or helping people is restricted to a handful of people, we don't get much success. If everybody that's in the Christian walk has the skill set and the, and the ability to deal with people with that, then the multiplication is going to go a lot wider and a lot quicker. And today I want you to help me 
unpack a little bit of this. The scriptures say, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you or transform you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked a couple of weeks ago that we're made up of three parts as people. We've got a body, this tent, this shell that we live in, this physicality that we have. We have a, a soul within us, which is our mind, will and emotions. And then we also have our spirit. And going back to this young man, I believe the moment that he gave his life to Christ, that he acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God and he confessed that he was a sinner, his spirit that was dead became alive. That God did an instantaneous regeneration of his spirit so that he was alive in Christ. And he was, we used the word justified by God, in, like Linda prayed this morning before, the judgment and the wrath of God that was on that man, that was going to punish that young man for his sin and his failures, God said, that's removed. I'm taking that off you now. And I'm accepting you. You're mine. You're, you're my son. You're part of my kingdom. So, the, so because of the death of Christ and Christ paying for our sin, God now looked at that young man through Jesus. And sees him as righteous. But it doesn't mean that he still doesn't carry some of the legacy of his past in the journey going forward. Does that make sense? He's a sinner saved by God's grace and mercy. And God's not looking at him with anything but love anymore. But something of his past environment and conditioning is still going to be with him on the journey forward. Now, the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have gone. All things are new. But I believe we need to be very careful that we understand that to be our spirit, not our soul and our body. And that part of the journey going forward is that God wants to take us on a journey of transformation for our soul and our body that's been affected by this sinful world that we live in and some of the traumas and the experiences and the the stuff that's happened in our life and, and take us through that on a journey of wholeness. And that's what we call sanctification. So I'm set right before God when I give my life to him and and positionally, I'm seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. No one can change that. My spirit has been sealed by God so that the enemy can't do anything to my spirit. He can't touch my spirit. It's sealed by God for the day of redemption. That part of my being is set apart for God and it will never be touched because the spirit of God dwells in me. He's filled that space up. Prior to my confession of faith and repentance, I was dead in Christ, but now I'm alive in Christ. My spirit is alive and now I can worship God in spirit and in truth. God's spirit within me to my spirit within me can connect with God. But my soul, my emotions, my my mindset, the things I think about, don't necessarily get completely transformed in that moment. I've got to go on a journey of learning, of of being, I'm going to call it the word, discipled into understanding the way that I should live. Um, because I don't automatically get know all of the Bible the moment I get saved. That's a big book with a lot of theology and a lot of you know knowledge that I don't have. That young man didn't have that knowledge. He had to learn it. 
and he had to learn the problems that he's had and the past that he's had and how God wants to change and renew that into something wonderful. And that's the beauty of what God does with all of us. So Jesus got these 12 guys and he lived with them for three years. This is the son of God who knows everything. And he intensely walked with them and taught them and trained them and equipped them to be the men of God that he could say, you know what to do now. Go and do the things that I've taught you. And so my premise that I'm trying to get you to understand today is I don't think we disciple people very well. I don't think we take them on a journey. I think we're very good at getting them saved and sticking a Bible under their arm and saying, welcome to the kingdom, welcome to the family. But I think we shortchange people that we don't help them understand the process of sanctification and help them in that moment or that, that start-up phase of their journey of faith how to break free from the stuff that they've been bound to. That young man, I can tell you from doing those things, would have needed deliverance ministry. He would have been demonically possessed and he would need deliverance. If I gave that young man to you, could you be confident to deliver him? to discover what might be in him that's controlling him, controlling his soul, not his spirit, his soul, his mindset, his emotions. Could you be confident you could figure out what it is and say, out you go, you don't belong anymore. Now, he's God's possession. Don't get me wrong. He's saved. Nothing's going to change that unless he blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. Unless he gets to a point in his journey where he says, that decision I made for God is a lie, I'm retracting that. That's the only thing that can rob him from his salvation. But he's saved and he's sealed by God, but it doesn't mean that he's a whole person. And so we need to take him on a journey to get him whole as quickly as we can. And I don't believe as a church that we have trained our people how to do this, or even un to understand what the strongholds or the blockages might be in his life. So I want to take you up to the end of Jesus' ministry, and he makes some pretty profound statements. Uh, this is, comes out of, the, out of Ephesians chapter 4. But to each one of us sitting here today, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, God says, when he ascended on high, he led captives free and gave gifts to men, now, this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for equipping of the saints for the work of ministry which would lead to the edifying of the body of Christ till we would all come to unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to be a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That little bit of scripture is a, is a picture of a Roman emperor rewarding his army and his generals when they come back from a conquest. It's the same thing. Jesus went into the place, lower places of the earth, we call it Hades, where all the Old Testament saints had been waiting and all the Old Testament people that had not had faith in God 
were waiting for their judgment and Jesus went down there and he descended to that place and he preached to them and said, I've conquered sin and death. You guys that had faith with me, in me, come with me into heaven. You guys that didn't have faith, there's more going to fill up this place. But he declared to them that he was the victor, that he had conquered the greatest enemy that there ever was. And part of that conquest was that Jesus went back to the right hand of the Father. He ascended, took up his role as the glorified Son of God, and he gave gifts to us to continue on the work of ministry that Jesus began. What's the work of ministry? Set captives free. Anything else? What is the work of ministry? What has God called us to do? Because if we can't answer that, what are we doing? So I want to take you back to the start of Jesus' ministry, where he actually told you what the work of ministry was. Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been raised, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, where he stood up, read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, where that was handed to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and has anointed me to tell the good news to the poor, he has set me to announce freedom to the prisoners or the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to announce the acceptable year of the Lord's favour. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue attendant, sat down. While the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled as you heard it read aloud. Now Jesus went back to his hometown and he proclaimed to the people in his village that I'm the Messiah that is written about in this passage of scripture. And you will know that I am the Messiah because these are the things that I'm going to do. They will substantiate and validate that I am who I say I am right here in this little synagogue this morning. And so wherever we see those things occurring, God is truly at work. And I believe that that list is like our job description or it's the primary template that we should assess whether we're really thriving or not. If we see all those things happening, then the fullness of God is operating and we're being really effective as, as, a, as a person if I'm involved in those things and if our church is involved in those things, then we're really thriving. Because I believe they're the five foundational ministries of Jesus that he wants to do in us to start with. That Jesus wants to do those things in every one of us. He wants to take us on a journey to make sure we're healed and we're whole. And it starts with salvation. It starts with hearing the good news. And the two phrases in that passage are preach good news to the poor and the acceptable year of the Lord's favour. Now the acceptable year of the Lord's favour was Jesus was saying, God will now accept you. And you know the good news? You can accept God. The window's open, the door, the law, the Old Testament law, I'm discarding that or fulfilling that in a different way that you can approach God. God will forgive you. God will embrace you. You can be a son of God. That's the time. That's the good news. That's the greatest news that there ever is and ever will be. And, and, and Jesus was saying, today it can happen. You can be saved. Come. Come all who are thirsty. Come to me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so that's 
part of what our job description is, is to tell anyone and anyone who will listen that God wants you. He loves you. He's not a big man with a stick. He wants to embrace you. And so that's the starting point of, of ministry is proclaiming the good news. And if you read the book of Acts, everywhere you go, they were doing whatever they could to proclaim that message, to get it out there, put it on billboards, email people, do whatever, blog it. You know, the message, they, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They were trying to get it out. And that's what Jesus did. He went around preaching the good news to the poor, not poor as in no money in the wallet, poor as in not knowing that this was available, spiritually poor. And then receiving that message and responding to it, they became spiritually rich. Jesus said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and has anointed me. We can hear the message and respond to it, but the next phase of that journey is to receive the anointing of God to go on to do the next things. Without the anointing of God, you can't do it. And I want you to look very closely at John chapter 1 verse, no, John chapter 4 verse 2. There's something really significant that I want you to notice. And I didn't write it, so I'll try and read it. But you know what happens when you turn 49? You can't see the pages anymore. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Jesus never baptized anybody in water. Never. It wasn't his job. Do you know why? Because it was his job to baptize you in the Spirit. So he didn't do water baptism. He left that to anybody can do water baptism, but only Jesus can baptize you in the spirit. And Jesus had to go through the waters of baptism. And John saw the Son of, Son of God receive the spirit. And, and he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So for us to continue on with our journey of wholeness, it starts with receiving the anointing of God, receiving the infilling of the spirit of God. We call it baptism in the spirit. We need that. We're not good at teaching that. We assume that it happens. We don't walk people through knowing that they're anointed by God and understanding that anointing and knowing how to move in that anointing so that they can go on to do the next things we're going to talk about. We need to be absolutely convinced that I'm anointed by God. Because when we're convinced of that, when we know that, then our humanity stops and the supernatural starts and God can use us. And God wants to do that work in us so that his spirit within us can help us in our own journey to be whole and healed. We can hear from God and we can walk with God. The next thing he said was recovery of sight for the blind. Jesus went about healing people everywhere he went. He dealt with what the devil had done to people physically by curing them. It was proof that he was God. It was proof that his kingdom was greater than the kingdom of darkness. And he passed that ministry on to his disciples and said, wherever you go, heal the sick. But we don't teach people how to do that. Has anybody ever taught you how to heal the sick? Has anybody taken you and to a sick person and said, this is what you do? This is what you start with. This is where you pray. This is what you don't do. Like, we don't teach people that. But 
we need to be convinced that any one of us at any times can lay hands on someone because of our anointing in God and pray for them and God will do what God wants to do. But we need to be convinced of that, that that's our calling of God. And then we need to give you the the practical skill set to know how to do it. And he goes on. He says, proclaim liberty to captives, deliverance ministry. I am utterly convinced that there is not one person in this room that doesn't or didn't need deliverance when they got saved. It's a big statement, hey? I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of it. You know why? Because... Because just let's just take one thing. Let's take rejection. Okay, we all know what rejection is. We were born rejected. We were born into rejection. God had rejected us. And so we were set up with a sensitivity to rejection. And we've all been through circumstances in our life where, where we got hurt and we got rejected and we withdrew and we felt wounded. And that is just one simple way that the enemy can come in and say, thank you, got you. Let me just work on that woundedness and set up a stronghold in your life and let that play out through all your relationships. So we need to rediscover the fact that deliverance ministry is not a dirty word. Remember that song that Skyhooks used to sing, Ego is not a dirty word? Deliverance ministry is not a stigma. I can assure you I've had plenty of deliverance ministry because of my past because of the things that I dabbled with, because of the things that I opened myself up to. Was I saved? Absolutely. Had no doubt about that. But did I struggle to walk in the wholeness of God? Yes. Why? Because I'd opened myself up to things that God had forgiven me for and was not holding against me, but the legacy of my choices pre-salvation meant that I was still carrying that baggage around with me. I'd slept with a number of people that weren't my wife. So I had a covenant relationship with those people that had to be broken. Now, if someone in my journey of salvation had said, Mark, you're going to repent today of your sin and could have given me the list of everything that I've done wrong, I would have been cleansed and whole right there. But we don't normally do that with people. We say, you want to give your life to the Lord? Great, repeat after me. You know, and we say a little prayer and we say, welcome to the kingdom, off you go. We should walk them through discipleship of a long journey of repentance, allowing the Spirit of God who has just anointed them to illuminate their mind to the things that God wants to do with. It's not like fishing. You don't have to go fishing. You let God reveal to them what needs to be cleaned and dealt with. And when he does, we're just taking them to the Lord and saying, this is how it's done. And so deliverance ministry... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Notice that God anointed Jesus. That becomes before he goes and does anything with power and the Holy Spirit. And because God was with him, he went around doing good and healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil. Now, in our culture, the devil doesn't have to manifest himself like a big, scary boogeyman. Okay, You go to a culture like Fiji or a culture that's even darker and you'll see very obviously the demonic realm. And, and its manifestation in people's lives. It's very obvious. In our culture, we're more civilised. And so the enemy doesn't have to front up like that. He can stay in the background. And we would take someone to the doctor and they diagnose them with perhaps schizophrenia or depression or something. And we would put a human label on it 
Whereas Jesus would deal with it from a spiritual sense and he would say something in that person's soul has been affected by the enemy. It needs to be addressed by God's power and healed. Now we're going to get into a bit of an argument in a minute because we need to deal with some of the things that this brings up like can a Christian be possessed by a demon? If your theology doesn't allow you space to see your soul and body differently from your spirit, then you'll say no. If your theology allows you to see that your spirit is that inner man in you that God has redeemed and sealed, but your soul and body are on the journey, then you can hold the two in intention. So a demonic spirit can, yes, can affect your soul, or your mindset. So a lot of people live in fear or they live with anger or they have addictions that they can't break. They're just in their soul, and the, but they're not in their spirit. And if we can separate those and help people to understand there's no shame and there's no stigma in allowing God to heal those areas, that's what the work of ministry is. It's bringing to people into wholeness with God. See, only God can deal with a human spirit. I can't deal with a human spirit, but I can help people in their soulish realm to move forward with God's help. And we need to hold that in our understanding. We're also going to have an argument about should everybody get healed? What's our starting point? Do we start off by saying, well, God will heal everybody? God will heal somebody. We don't know, so we'll just try. These are all questions we need to answer if we're going to do the work of ministry. Because if Brad rings me up and says, Mark, I've got a mate who's like that young man. Would you come and help him? Do I go there thinking, well, I don't know what God's intention for that young man is, or do I go, God wants to bring him right through to wholeness? Giving God the grace to do what God will do in God's time. And then the fifth thing that Jesus talked about was, and this is very significant that we understand it because the, the Greek words are very profound that, that the scripture uses. We, it, it was, let's call it soul healing or inner healing. He used the phrase, heal the brokenhearted, which is the Greek word, tribu, which means if I got a jar or a plate and I smashed it to smithereens to the point where it would be impossible to put that thing back together. That's what Scripture's talking about. People whose hearts have been shattered by life. Those two young girls that we're going to adopt have been sexually abused. They've been rejected by their mother. They're going to have shattered, broken hearts. And something has to happen to rebuild them, and only Jesus can do it. He wants to heal broken-hearted people. We've all been broken-hearted. There's not one person in this room that hasn't had a broken heart in some context that God wants to heal. Now, he may heal it at the point of our salvation, but it's probably going to be a journey of the Lord saying, you know, you need to deal with this, Mark. There's still something there. And he also uses the phrase to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the Greek word is bruised, bruised by life. Now, I don't know about you, but I meet people all the time whose life has just beaten them up. Not always their fault. Wrong family. Bad choices. But life has dealt them a really bad deal, and they're bruised. And you push a little bit, 
and they go, ouch, you know, they're hard to love because they're protecting themselves from being bruised by life. And Jesus is saying that's our ministry is to get into that mess and clean it up and bring them through to wholeness. Now, my fear and my apology to you is that on behalf of the church, we haven't taught you how to do that. We haven't taught people how to go on a journey of discipleship where you're made whole. Now, let me prove it to you. How many of you had one person who took you, let's say, for 12 months, 24 months, week by week, on a process of discipleship, teaching you about the kingdom of God, where you are with God, who he is, what he wants to do with you. How many of you had someone who committed to you, let's say for at least 12 months, week in, week out? Would you put your hand up if you had someone do that? Put it up high. Have a look. You were blessed. You were really blessed because someone discipled you. Jesus said, go into all the world and make converts. He said, make disciples. But you've never been discipled. I never got it. And so I fumbled and stumbled my way through. I got discipled bits piecemeal, but I didn't get someone who did what Jesus did to the apostles and walked with them intently and intensely over a period of time to the point where he could pass the baton back to them and say, I've given you everything I've got. Taught you all, now go and do it yourself. Because what God wants to do is restore and renew spirit, soul, and body. That was the verse that we saw at the very beginning. And we've got to take scripture at its word. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, make you holy, transform you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. Now, what I'm trying to tell you today is I believe that's a process. That just because we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord doesn't mean my backyard is all cleaned up and I'm ready to go. I've got to go on a journey of going to wholeness. That doesn't disqualify me from doing ministry. But it doesn't position me to really be an effective ministry if I'm still carrying around a whole lot of baggage myself. It's like the captive trying to get the captive free. We're still both locked up in the cell. So I think what Jesus wants us to do is to be free, as free as we can possibly be, given what God reveals to us. And then from that freedom and that knowledge, then go and do that with other people and help them walk into the fullness of the freedom that God wants. So if these are the five foundational ministries of Jesus and when we looked at the end statement, Jesus said, I'm going to give you apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers so that they can equip the church, the saints, to do the work of ministry. What have we done? The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers do all the ministry. How can we multiply out that, that out to take over the world? We can't. So what the apostles, prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers need to do is say, we got it wrong. We should have equipped you. We should have given to you what we know, the skill set that what we've learned, we need to pass that on to you so that you know what we know and we can all do it. And then when we disciple people, we've got the know-how to know how to deal with a young man like that. And any time we get into a place where we don't know 
what to do next, I know who does. Do you need to ring him? Where does he live? God, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do here. I know this guy's struggling. Give me revelation or give him revelation to know what needs to be done. And it's not a complicated process. We've just got scared or we haven't given people the know-how. And so therefore, if that is true, then how can we expect the church to thrive? We can't. We can't thrive ourselves because we haven't been walked through that journey and we can't take others through that journey. And so we need to reinvent church. So sharing the gospel or leading people to salvation, teaching teaching people the basic truths of Scripture. Let me show you something in Hebrews 6 verse 3. Something that will scare you in a good way. Hebrews chapter 6. My eyesight's getting really bad. Okay. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. That's a process, right? Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Okay? I should be asking... Oh, I should be able to ask any one of you to stand up here and say, Lorraine, your topic for today is the resurrection of the dead. Could you please tell us the elementary teachings about the resurrection of the dead? The writer of Hebrews is saying this is Christianity 101. My shame is that the church has not taught you even the basics. How can we go on to maturity? How can we take people into maturity when we've never been even taught ourselves? You know, the laying on of hands. Who's, have you ever heard a sermon about the laying on of hands? What it means, why we do it, what are the results of it, what not to do, when to do it, how to do it? No, we just assume people know. Oh, this, we, we're praying for someone, we'll put our hands on them. But if we don't, like, I'm not trying to be silly, but, but do you see the silliness of it? If we don't equip people, and that's what Jesus said, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to what? Equip, train, educate, teach, workshop, make sure they know how to do the work of ministry. And that's the work of ministry. Do you know how to lead someone to the Lord? Do you know what the gospel is? Jesus died, rose again. We need to know that message so we can proclaim it succinctly, precisely, explain it. They're the basic truths. We need to know what spirit baptism is, the anointing of God. We pray every Sunday, God, anoint us, anoint the worship team, anoint the preacher so he doesn't rabble on. You know, but we talk about this word, but this word had, has great power, the dunamis power of God. And if we can teach people what that power is, how it operates, how to know when it's operating, how to use that power, we position that person to be a powerhouse for God. If we don't teach them those things, they can't do it. We don't really teach people about physical healing. Now, Simone's got a frozen shoulder. Noel's got a frozen shoulder. Does God want to heal that or doesn't he want to do it? Or is it a lottery? I don't have all the answers, but I know I need to find them. And I need to have the wisdom to know God wants to do this in this context. 
And that's what walking in the anointing of God is, is that I'm not trying to figure that out for myself. I'm just flowing in the spirit. And God says, do this, Mark. Do that. Or someone comes and says, I have a problem. And I say, I can't help you with the problem, but I know someone who does. Let's pray. Let's, let's ask God to show us what the root of that problem is so we can get to it, root it out, and you'll be healed and move on. We need to, need to know about physical healing. There's people right through our nation and right throughout the world who are just crippled by physical ailments. And we talk about the spirit of infirmity. Well, where did that come in? Why did that person end up that way? Why, do they have, why does my family have a history of chronic fatigue? Why did I get that? But can I break that? Do I have to resign myself to that's how I'm always going to be? Or can God help me to live with that affliction in such a way that it doesn't rule my life, but I rule it? These are all questions we need to ask. As disciples, people are going to ask you those questions. And you don't want to patronise them or condemn them. You want to help them understand the truth of God's word. That's what we do as disciples. Deliverance ministry, confronting and evicting the demonic. It was an everyday occurrence of Jesus' life and ministry. It was an everyday occurrence of the apostles' life and ministry. And we hardly ever see it. Something's wrong. It's there, but we've put this stigma on it. We've put this label on it like you could never be possessed by a demon. They're just, they're just, they're just wicked, evil, you know, demonic forces that will have no mercy on anyone that given any slight opportunity, they'll get in there and they'll try and make your life difficult. We're all afflicted by the enemy in some way, shape or form, be that external or internal doesn't really make much difference. If we weren't, then the Bible wouldn't say, be on guard. It wouldn't say, wear the full armour of God. It wouldn't say, be careful that, the, the, you know, that, that, that Satan's pro, you know, roaring around like a lion, looking for who he might devour. If we were immune from the enemy, then we wouldn't have to worry about those statements in Scripture. But there's a chance. If we don't live righteous, holy, godly lives, if we make wrong choices, we open the door. So deliverance ministry is not this big thing that we've made it out to be. It's just releasing people from a stronghold that's stronger than just a one bad choice. And we set them free. And we talk about things in our, in our discipleship like generational curses. So my grandfather... And my grandfather's, yeah, you know, my grandfather and his father were both involved in um, Freemasonry. And when I gave my life to Christ and I renounced everything that I'd been involved in, did that have an effect on the decisions that my grandfather and his father made? Or is there something from that line that comes down and can affect me because of their bad choices? Now, the Bible says the sins of the father go to the third and the fourth generation. So something that my great-great-great-great-grandfather did could afflict me today because I've been born through that bloodline. Now, we would say, some people would argue, no, you're a new creation. You're not part of the Adam bloodline anymore. You're part of the second Adam, the bloodline of Christ. That's been broken. It's been done away with. Well, okay, can you explain to me then why all this is still happening? 
I am a new creation, yes, in my spirit, but my soul is still carrying the legacy of those things in my life. I need to be free. Now, some people will argue that there are no generational curses. I can live with that if your life is going well. But normally when you talk to those people, there's still struggles going on. And I say, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If it's all dealt with at the cross, if it's finished, if the curses are broken, then why are you not perfect? You can't have it both ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. In, in, I haven't dealt with that. That's what I'm saying. It's not dealt with. What's that? Yeah, not to do with that, no. But you see the point. We've, we would have a whole range of different opinions about, about what has happened and what hasn't happened and what do we do with people that are still bound up or still struggling with an issue. None of us in this room are perfect. Not one of us is perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about perfection. We cannot be perfect, but we can be whole, more whole than we were yesterday and more whole than we were the day before. And we need to discover in God how we get people further and further into maturity, further and further into wholeness. And I'm not saying I've got the perfect answer. I'm saying all I can do is take you back to what Jesus did. And if he said that's the work of ministry, then we need to unpack it enough to really know what we're doing. Because we have people with wounded hearts and distressed minds, people that are bound up in fear, and they're still Christians. We're all Christians that are still struggling, but do we just resign ourselves to that and say, well, I'll just accept that? Or is there a way forward we can, where we can go, God is going to get me out of this? Now, Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. He had to live with something that was an affliction of some sort. And God just said, Paul, you're going to have to live with it. So maybe not everybody gets healed. I don't know, but God could surely tell us this is going to be what I'm going to ask you to live with and you would have confidence that God has given you that lot in life. You can share something. <laughs> you're my wife, you're allowed to. <laughs> I just felt maybe I should share something. Is that on, Brad? Yeah. Um, we... <laughs> Some of you who don't know, we've, we have an adopted son and he's, he's 10 now and he, he has a particular stronghold in his life that I am absolutely convinced is a generational thing and on his behalf as his adoptive parents, we have um, we've prayed through that and, and we've asked the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord had shown me that um, it's something that as he matures in Christ himself, as he develops a, a relationship with Christ himself, that that will be something that he needs to come before the Father with. Um, it was like the Lord saying to me, I've got it and I'm keeping it at bay. Like Matthew doesn't even realise he has this particular stronghold. So it's, it's not oppressing him necessarily, but I, we can see the outcome of it. 
But when he actually matures himself and he comes before the Lord himself and he says, God, will you show me? Then God will bring that revelation. And that was really difficult for me because I was like, well, God, how come I as the parent can't, you know, why can't I be the one that breaks this off him and whatever? And the Lord said there are some particular strongholds that if they come through that generational line and he's not of our generational line, he's not our, he's not our blood, that when he takes authority himself, that's when the curse is broken. So I hope that makes sense. Thanks for interrupting. It's all good. So I'm not, I'm not here today to say I've got answers and I'm not here to say that it's an easy subject. I'm saying it's a complex one because of the different theologies we've had and the different journeys and the different teachings. What I'm saying is when I look at what Jesus did in those three years of his ministry, what, what he was doing day by day by day, those five foundational things, and then when I look at what he said when he finished the work and said, well, I'm passing the baton back to you guys to do the work of ministry... I can only assume that the work of ministry was what Jesus did. And that's what he did. He addressed those things in people's lives. And I believe the church's responsibility and something we haven't done very well collectively as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is, is to give you the skills and the knowledge to know how to do that work of ministry. So we need to, as a church, sort of, I think, rethink the way we do church in terms of what we equip people with. And we need to do way more equipping and less preaching. You know, more equipping. This is how we do it. Our hands on church. And I think we need to redo discipleship. So if I asked you now, who are you discipling? Is there some one person that you're journeying with very intensely, giving them everything that you know, helping them to understand everything that you know? Is there one person that you're doing that with? You put your hand up if you are. No, this is out. Let's say outside to children. Because if we're only ministering to our own, then the, 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 script, the kingdom never multiplies, only through our kids. Not many, hey? And, and that's my point. I'm not putting that on you as a judgment. I'm just saying we haven't set the Christian faith up in the right model. Because we should have been discipled. Someone should have walked with us like Paul walked with Timothy and then passed the baton on to him and Timothy passed the baton on to the next people. We should have got that and we didn't. So we've got to work around that and go, well, let's come back a step, give people that, get them ready to be disciples so that they can do the work of ministry so that that responsibility is not just left for a handful of select people whose salary we pay and who we send everybody to because you can't do it. If we're going to see the whole of Pakenham come to God, you're not going to tell me we're going to have some ministry to do? We're going to have a lot of prayer ministry to do and a lot of training and equipping of people to do. I can't do it. So I need to know that you can do it. So I can say, Scott, this young man needs you to journey with him for two years and I need to be confident he knows he can get him through and not make him worse than he was before. <laughs> not putting that on you, mate, but you know what I mean. Because we've had this mismatch of little bits of stuff, we don't quite know what to do. And we need to teach people what to do. Linda?
Yeah, yeah, that would be part of the anointing of God, that we, we are confident that God lives in us, and therefore that confidence is an intimacy with God that allows us to have that connection at any point in any time. So given any scenario, if I pick our Andrew up today and I drop him in Fiji and he has to pray for someone, he can go, well, Lord, I can hear what you're saying, therefore I'll do this with this young man. That's the spontaneity of the Spirit. And if it is a assumed thing that we can hear from God. Does anybody actually teach us how to hear from God? We just say, go and sit under a tree, be quiet, and you'll hear from God. Um, yeah, stillness is part of it, but... But you know what I'm saying? If we're not giving this to our children in our own family, then how can we expect them to go on to be mature disciples? You know, Jacob and, you know, Michaela, we need to be teaching these young people how to do these things. We, we didn't quite get the wholeness of it, but we can give it to them. So I think we need to revisit those five foundations. We need to understand that we are a messy church. You know, there's... There'll be things in my life that'll come up and I'll probably need to go and have prayer ministry for it. Does that make me lesser a person? Does it mean I'm a failure? No, it's just one compartment of my life that, that I have recognition that I didn't deal with back there. I'm still moving on in God. But it wasn't confessed or dealt with. I mean, you know, if you go back through my past, I did so much that was wrong. It's not a wonder it's taken, you know, God a long time to get it all out on the table. And it's a decision not to live in denial. So when I raise this subject up with a lot of people, they just run for cover. They don't, they don't want to even hear you. Because it's easier to say that it's all been dealt with and I don't have anything to deal with. That would be the easiest way of doing it. And my only thing is, well, then, then what is the work of ministry? What is left to do? There is nothing left to do. We don't need to do any ministry because God's already done it. But there is a both end. There is my spirit is sealed Claimed by God, it can never be affected, but my soul, my mind, my emotions can still have work in progress. So don't live in denial. Just be open to God to let him renew anything he wants to do in your life. Don't live in ignorance of it. That's what most of us have done most of our life because people like me, who are pastor teachers, haven't given you what you need. And all I can do is apologise because you got robbed. You didn't get set up with the platform that you should have got to live this Christian life. And then I think we need to think generationally. We're not just doing this for ourselves in this quadrant of time. We're setting this up so that our children and our children's children have the legacy of what we're passing on to them. So we give them, even though if we didn't get it, get it we give it to them. And we make sure that they do get it so that they can walk in the wholeness that God has for them. I hope that makes sense. So I knew I was going to have your head spinning a little bit today, but they are big questions. They are big questions, and in our theology, we have to work them out. If we say Christians can't be affected by the enemy, then that takes you down a whole different road to Christians can be affected by the enemy. What happens if there's... Um, yeah, I'm just going to go on and on and on about the same thing. But you understand what I'm trying to say. We need discipleship. Intense discipleship. Find somebody. Give your life away to them. Walk with them. Journey with them. Make sure they know everything you know plus more. And set them up to be the greatest Christian that they can be. And then they will naturally pass on all that to the next person. And if we multiply that out, 
We've got healthy, mature believers who I can say, Lorraine, come and teach us about the resurrection of the dead. And she can say, yeah, the day is going to come when the judgment, you know, the trumpet of the Lord is going to sound and the dead in Christ shall rise and we will be gathered up in the air with them. And she can teach us the basic truths of Christianity. We should all be able to do that. So here's what I'd like to do as a church and I'd like your blessing to do it. For the next nine months, I want the Liberty Centre to be a training centre where we train and equip and we train and we equip and we practice and we role model and we teach people these five foundational ministries. It will be your choice whether you come or not. I'll set the training sessions up. I'll teach you everything that I know. I'll bring people in that know more than me if necessary, which will be necessary. But there are people that have journeyed in areas where, where they've got more confident, like Ken, when you talk to Ken Fish about healing, he's got a lot of wealth to impart because he's done a lot of healing. You talk to me about healing, I haven't done a lot. So I, don't, I can't offer you what he can offer you and the insights that he can, but I can get him and get him to come and teach us. And likewise, evangelists, people that have that different giftedness, I think we need that. And I want us to grow. So I want to set the church up so we're practicing this stuff so that we're ready to tackle a lost, broken, hurting world. And we're ready with answers so that you don't have to bring your friend to me, Alyssa. You can take her and you can take her down that road and that journey confident in God that you can lead them into everything God wants for them. Let's pray. I've given you enough of a headache. Father, I want to thank you that we were destined to thrive, that you commissioned that in heaven, that we would be a people that would live this life in such a way that even though we are in the midst of our enemies, that you would prepare a banquet table for us, that that's our mindset in life, Lord, that no matter what the world might throw at us, no matter what the enemy might throw at us, that we would live confident and secure in the knowledge that we're saved, that we're anointed and that we have power and authority to act on behalf of Jesus to set captives free, to open blind eyes, to heal broken-hearted people. Father, whatever that means, teach us to be able to do that effectively, easily, and profoundly. Because, Father, we want to be a church that's replicating what you did. And we want to see the results of those things, the physical healing, the emotional healing, the mindsets that are transformed and changed. We want to see people delivered and made whole and we want to hear their testimony of what God did for them. Father, thank you that we get the privilege of walking that journey with people. Father, we don't always have answers, but we know the one who does. So Lord, I want to pray that you would stir us up as a church to be a people that are hungry, to be ministers of relief and aid and servants of people so we can take them out of the clutches of the enemy, out of the bondage of all that he's done to bruise them and break them and see them whole again. Because you are the God of revival. You are the God of regeneration, renewal, refreshing. Any word you can think of that starts with re, that's God. Because he revitalizes us. He's the God that makes all things new. Thank you, Lord, that we are new creations. That the old has 
gone, that we can conquer that past and all those hurts and wounds and traumas and we can live in victory. Thank you, God, that we are more than conquerors. So, Father, I thank you for these beautiful people. Thank you for their desire to want to be just like you. And thank you, God, that you are going to put in their hands, you're going to train their fingers for battle and their hands for war. And we don't fight with the weapons of this world, but we fight with the weapons that you've given us, God. And we want to take those weapons and we want to make them sharp and we want to armor them up so that they're like big bazookas, that we will take down the gates of hell without fear. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Father, I thank you for these beautiful people. Thank you for the journey that they're on, Father. Help me to help them and help us to help one another so that we really do thrive, not, not just individually, but as families and as a community and as a community that impacts our community. That's what we desire for, God. So stir us up, Lord. Stir up that gift that you put in us. Help us to move on in you. Help us to learn more, to practice more, to preach more, to pray more, to move at the unction of your spirit in whatever way you lead us to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Johnny.